Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just, uh, we thank you this morning for just the chance to be together, Lord, just to, in a sense, for a lot of us, it might be our first time together this year, Lord, and uh, we thank you for all of your goodness and your faithfulness to us, bringing us through 2016, and we look ahead into this new year, Lord. Maybe even right now, we just want to commit it to you. We want to look to you, Lord. We want um, the, the eyes and the heart of faith as we look out over our lives, we consider the things that we have going on in our lives as we look at this world, Lord. Um, we, we pray that you would just fix us on you, Lord, that you'd fill us with hope. And Lord, I pray this morning that as, as we come to this passage of Scripture, that it would be a source of encouragement to every person here today, Lord, that we would find strength in you, that we would be reminded of the reality of our faith, Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on Christ. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessing upon this time. We pray that your spirit would anoint it and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Book of Revelation, I think, a lot of times is totally underrated as a, uh, a passage of Scripture to be able to teach from. You know, it seems kind of big and mysterious, but there's lots of wonderful stuff in Revelation. And so I want to take us here to Revelation chapter 14, and it says this in verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Of course, we know Revelation is John's vision. It's a vision that was given to him while he was in exile on the island of Patmos. It concerns the end of time and God's story and wrapping up uh, human history and his salvation story. And in John's vision at this point in time, we're taken all the way into the future part of the kingdom where uh, it's the end of the age. And in Mount Zion, on Jer in Jerusalem, Mount Zion is one of the, the seven mountains that make up the city, the city of Jerusalem. There's the Mount of Olives that we were talking about a couple weeks ago where Christ is going to return to. There's Mount Moriah where Abraham made... Uh, went to make the sacrifice of his son Isaac, and God provided a, a, a ram. And Mount Moriah is the place where Jesus was crucified. And then here we have Mount Zion. And in my mind, Mount Zion always kind of seems to stand for the ultimate victory of the Lord. And so here, John sees the lamb, and we know who the lamb is. He's the lamb who took away the sins of the world. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with Jesus, here John sees 12,000 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, so a total of 144,000. No one's missing. None has been lost. We read about this group. If you were to go back in the, uh, Revelation chapter 7, maybe you want to check that out later today. They are a group of, of men, actually, who were special witnesses during the time of the Great Tribulation that's to come upon the world. And this 144,000, John sees them as they're standing there with Jesus and he says that they were marked on their forehead with the name of the Lamb and with the name of his Father and they're standing victoriously with Jesus. And so in your mind, you picture the mountain, you picture the Lamb standing there, all these uh, people with Jesus and really this is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. This is the great fulfillment. It's called... Uh, in many ways, the capstone prediction of all of the prophets, including Isaiah and Jeremiah, that the Messiah will come 
God's Lamb, Jesus Christ, and he will stand in victory on Mount Zion with those who belong to him. John, the vision goes on. It says in verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So again, here's the picture. John sees in his vision, he hears actually with his ears, he hears this loud voice from heaven. It's a, it's a voice with the roar of many waters. We see that elsewhere in, in scripture, the sound of thunder. We see it in uh, the book of Ezekiel and the gospels in Revelation chapter one. This is the voice of the Lord that John is hearing. And along with his voice, John hears the sound of harpists. They're playing and they're singing. And it's the 144,000 and they're singing a song, John said, that nobody else could learn. Now, first thing I think when I hear that is that's not fair. I want to sing that song. Like, what's the deal with that? Why not? But here's why no one else could learn that song. Because they alone had gone through the testing and the trials of tribulation, the great tribulation. They alone had experienced the preservation and the redemption of Jesus Christ in the midst of the tribulation. And they went through that tribulation and they maintained their integrity and they maintained their faith and they maintained their commitment to the message of Jesus Christ, of the gospel and their faithfulness to Jesus. And because of that, they alone were given a song that they would sing of the faithfulness of God and all that God had done for them during that time. And this morning, I'm going to give us just four simple points as we go through this text. And here's the first one. Jesus is going to redeem us from this earth. That does deserve an amen. Jesus is going to redeem us from this earth. You know, everyone goes through times of tribulation, trials, hardships, those who follow Jesus Christ. There is the story of uh, the great musician, George Frederick Handel. You know him. He wrote Handel's Messiah. The writer of Handel's Messiah was, has quite the story. Before he composed that famous musical piece, he had two strokes. He was totally paralyzed on the right side. Eventually, he lost, lost his vision in his left eye. History tells us that his money was gone. The creditors were after him. At one point, they seized him and they threatened to imprison him. He was a man that was so disheartened in life and by the tribulations and the things that he was going through that he despaired life for a time. He wanted to take his life. He suffered from anxiety, from depression. But in the midst of that, in the midst of all his trials, something in his life continued to prove true and he prevailed in his faith in Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all of his personal tribulation and coming out of that, do you know what he composed? His greatest work ever, Handel's Messiah. The, the Hallelujah Chorus, which is part of it, which, which we know that is part of that great Messiah. This morning we sang, actually, It Is Well With My Soul. The song, I don't know if you know the history of that song. Horatio Spafford wrote that song. In 1871, Horatio Spafford lost all of his property and wealth in the great Chicago fire. He had lakefront property, lots of it, commercial property. 
The tragedy was that in the midst of the fire, all the deeds and all the paperwork and everything was consumed. And so he had no way to prove what he owned after that fire. He lost everything. And so in his effort to rebuild life, two years later, he decided he would send his wife and his children back to England and he would follow them as he tried to wrap up some business stuff, trying to pull things back together. And in the journey across uh, the Atlantic to England, history says that, it, well, the story is, the ship went down and Horatio's wife survived, but his four daughters drowned in the accident. And so when he eventually crossed the Atlantic to catch up to his wife, he asked the ship's captain to let him know when they were in the vicinity, the area where the ship had gone down that had taken his daughter's lives. And so the captain let him know. And the story is this, is that looking out over the ocean, he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. He wrote that hymn of praise to the Lord. You know, the apostle John said this, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Jesus encourages us, hold fast till I come. There was a poll taken in the United States in regards to religious questions. And, and when asked if people believed in God, the, the populace that was polled, 95% of those who polled said, yes, I believe in God. And then the next question on this poll was this, was whether their religion had any effect on their political beliefs or in their business. And 54% said no. They had a belief in God, but their belief did not, they didn't have a life directing faith. And you know, I think about this text, I think about the 144,000 or Spafford or Handel. Faith, faith is a belief that directs our lives. It is action. Faith encompasses the entire spectrum of life and all that we encounter and all that we are to experience. There was a colored church that uh, met to pray for rain to come from the sky after a long period of drought. And as they gathered, the, the preacher looked at his flock and he said, brothers and sisters, you all know why, why is we here? What I want to know is, where is your umbrellas? <laughs> you know, faith sees the invisible. It believes the incredible. It receives the impossible. Faith, when it's idle, it's easy for faith to be idle when everything's good, when everything's comfortable. It's only when there's adversity that one's faith in God is exercised like a, like a muscle and it grows in strength and, and becomes supple with exercise. Spurgeon said this, a little faith will bring your soul to heaven. A great faith will bring heaven to your soul. See, faith is not believing that God can, but that God will. And faith is to believe in that which we do not see. And the reward of this faith is to see that which we believe. The 144,000 stood with Jesus victorious on Mount Zion. Faith fulfilled. And ours will be fulfilled. You know, God's intention is that the result of trials and tribulations would be a song of praise to him from us that reveals 
his character in the midst of our trials that reveals his faithfulness in the midst of his, his trials. You know, I was, I was thinking about it. I can't, I can't worship God like Handel or like Horatio Spafford because I don't know what it's like to go through those trials. I, I have my own trials. You have your own trials. We all have our own tribulations and God is going to lead all of us out on the other side of those. You know, I think of Acts chapter 16. It tells us about uh, Paul and Silas in a dark, damp dungeon, locked up. In that place, they weren't complaining about the food. They weren't overcome by their situation. In faith, they looked to heaven and they sang. They praised God. At midnight, when things were as dark as they could be, Paul and Silas worshiped the Lord. They weren't trying to twist his arm. They weren't trying to manipulate him as if they could do that. They sang because they trusted in the faithfulness of God. They sang because they knew from experience the faithfulness of God. And I just, as I was thinking about this text and thinking about life, it's easy to get down, isn't it? It's easy to get down in our situations and our circumstances. And what I want to remind you is just some simple things this morning. That Jesus said this, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Jesus totally, completely, absolutely, perfectly, unreservedly is with you. And trials will naturally bring you down. Tribulations, naturally, it's going to bring you down. But in the midst of them, the Lord is always at work in everything to reveal his good nature to us. To reveal that he is working for our good. He's at work so that we can discover who he is. And so that we can discover all that Jesus is and who he claimed to be. And when we see the Lord even at work in our tribulations, the reality is this. is For us, he's going to bring out a song in our lives. A song of, of praise. A song to his faithfulness. And so I want to encourage you, when, when life gets tough... Don't let your trials and, and your situations paint God in a bad light. God is good. And when you see his goodness, even in the midst of life's troubles, it will put, it does put a song in your heart, doesn't it? And the promise is this. Just like God redeemed and brought those 144,000 through, so he's going to redeem us and bring us through. John's revelation goes on. It says this in verse 4. It is these, speaking of the 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Uh, this group's obviously very special. I kind of I chuckle about them because we know different cult groups claim that this number applies to them. But, I mean, you read this, they're all Jewish, they're all male, they're all virgins. I don't know, that eliminates a lot of people. <laughs> might wanna, next time they come knocking at your door, you might want to just ask about that one. I've never done that, but, you know. <laughs> Look, they're obviously very special. God used them as his witnesses to the message of the gospel during the Great Tribulation. It says there again that the name of Jesus and the name of his Father are on their foreheads. To me, this is the picture. They think about him constantly. That's where their thought life is. 
they're thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about the Father. In their hearts, they have a song. Don't you love it when the Lord just puts his, one of his songs in your heart? That, that song overflows from their mouth, John, John records. And they follow Jesus wherever he goes. You know what I, I, I notice about that? It's, these were men who were sexually pure in a depraved generation. I would say keeping close to Jesus helped them in the midst of that generation. No lie is found in their mouth. Remember, the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth always exposes what's going on in the heart. And there was a song in the heart. And so no lie was found in their mouth. And you know, I, I, I just think about this for you and I. When your life is pure in these areas, when, you, when Jesus is on your mind, when there is a song in your heart, when you are following him and staying close to him and keeping sexually pure, when your speech is sweet and there's no lie in your mouth, that, that is a pure, purity and a holiness which will result in fruit for the kingdom and fruit in your life. Your life will produce fruit for the kingdom of God. And where this encourages me is this. Is this the second point I want to leave you with? Is this. Be found before the throne. 2017. Be found before the throne of God. You know, the problem for all of us is that we fail. You know, but when we do fail, the place to be found is the place where this group is. Before the throne of God. They followed the lamb wherever he went. Before the throne of God, you know, you think about it, we are blameless in that place. Because there the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. It's when we spend time with Jesus, when we come before his throne, that we are found blameless. And it's from that place that the Holy Spirit produces in us holiness and, and purity. It's from that place of abiding in the vine that our lives produce fruit. Go often to the throne. Spend time with Jesus. John goes on. What we read here is pretty sweet. Verse six, he says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead. He's referring back to other angels that he's seen earlier in this vision. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. In my mind, you know, the hundred and Great Tribulation, the 144,000 have been the troops on the ground in the trenches, so to speak, preaching Jesus. And now, Jesus, the commander-in-chief, sends air support. Angel. An angel flying overhead. And this angel goes out throughout the earth to proclaim the eternal gospel to those who dwell on the earth. In many ways, I think of the angel like this. I think this is a real true picture the angels are like kids sitting on a bench in a sense. You know, when you coach sports teams, there's always some kids that get left a little bit sitting on the bench. They're like, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. I can do it, coach. Put me in. And just sitting on the end of the bench. Well, finally, the time comes. And the coach says, you're in the game. You're in. You know, Hebrews tells us, First Peter tells us that the angels are ministering spirits. They're sent to serve the heirs of salvation. It's you and me. Peter says that the angels long to look at the good news. That's because, that's to say the angels are earnestly studying the gospel. They're, they, they, they're just in awe of the gospel because 
They can't comprehend grace and the working of God's grace in your life and in my life. It's like a mystery. You know, the angel that's assigned to me and the angel that's assigned to you, they're like, I can't believe this, God. Seriously? Like, I go with this guy everywhere. You know who he is and what he's like? They're studying the gospel. They're studying grace. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 10. He says that when the church gathers, we should be sensitive to the fact that there are angels in our midst. It's a cool thought. You know, I don't often think about that. I mean, often I remind us or I remind myself, Jesus is in our midst. Where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. That Jesus is here. He's walking amongst his church. But often I forget about the angels. I don't know about you. Why? You know, why are they here? Are they hoping to get saved? No. They don't have free will and choice like you and I. Well, then why are they here? They're here to learn the scriptures? No, I would say they probably know the Bible. Uh, What are they longing to look at with regards to the good news of the gospel? And the answer is this, it's grace. They're looking at us and they are trying to figure out the mystery of God's grace. They're blown away by the miracle of the cross and that God would save people like you and I. You know, I look around the room, I don't know. Just do the math here. Let's double it. There's got to be that many angels right here in our presence this morning. And if there's an angel that's assigned to each of us, then all the time they see the good and they see the bad. They're trying to figure out grace. They minister to us on God's behalf and to one another. You know, I can kind of hear the conversation. Seriously, dude, (laughs) I can't figure it out. I can't figure out grace. I cannot figure out how Jesus, you know, applies his blood to that nitwit and forgives him time and time again. Right when I think I got it figured out once again, grace surprises me. I can't figure out the unmerited favor of God. See, the angels are learning about grace by studying us. And one day Jesus is going to look down the bench He's going to point to that angel and say, okay, you've been studying grace. You've been watching it. Now go preach it. Go proclaim it. Fly over the whole earth. And this is my third point right here is this. This this brings home a reality that Jesus could come at any time. Jesus could come at any time. You know, for years I used to think that, you know, Jesus wasn't going to come back until the whole world had heard the message of the gospel, that the church had proclaimed it. Jesus says this, Matthew 24, verse 14, we're going to get to it in a few weeks in church. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. And so, you know, in my heart, in my mind, I always thought, well, you know, If the church works hard and we reach all of the unreached people groups and nations and tribes and tongues, and once the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Jesus is going to come for his church. But this passage tells us, gives us some little hints that I, I think could suggest otherwise. John said he saw an angel that will preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Every language group. And that means this, even though we've been given the task to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, Jesus could come before that job is finished. 
And then he'll send an angel to finish the job. Jesus could come for his church at any time. The return of Christ for his church, it could be today. I mean, you think about it. Imagine, Jesus came for us today. And if it is today, awesome. And if it's not, then we go about the work of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth and sticking to the task of sharing Jesus with the world. Check out what this angel declared, verse 7. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. What's the message of the angel? Give glory to God. Worship him as creator. This is the hour of judgment. You know, during the great tribulation, the book of Revelation tells us that the world, those who don't know God, are going to honor the beast. They're going to worship this, this beast. They're going to take his name. They're going to take his mark. And this angel will come from heaven. You're in the game, off the bench. In you go, preach the gospel. Proclaim it. And when the angel comes from heaven, he'll call people to fear and to give glory to God alone because God is going to bring judgment. And the angel will remind the world that it's God who made heaven and earth. It's God who made the sea and the springs of water. It's a reminder that God is the creator and he alone is worthy and deserving of our worship. You know, I think about the gospel we proclaim. We proclaim that. We kind of proclaim something a little bit different about the gospel, really. I mean, we, we preach Christ and Christ crucified for our sin and died for the sins of the world, buried, raised from the dead on the third day. This angel is going to proclaim the gospel from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 that declares that all of creation bears witness to the existence of God, revealing his eternal power. The creation reveals divine nature. This message of the angel will call the world back to the basics and it'll say this, God is creator and worship him. Of course, Romans 1 tells us all of humankind is without excuse for rejecting God because creation is his poem. It's his handiwork. It's, it's the work of God's hands so that we, his creation, would look out upon creation and give him glory, give thanks to him. And we went last week, um, we hopped in the car after church. It was New Year's Day. Did a drive, went up to uh, outside of Palm Springs there and we went into the Joshua Tree National Park. And we drove the length of the park. I wanted to do the whole park because you could kind of enter on the north end and come out on the south end. It was two hours driving at 45 miles an hour through the park. And um, I was so in awe of the beauty of God in there. You know, we have a beauty here. There's a, every place has its own beauty. Watching the way the desert changed and transformed and, and it was stunning and the worship music was on in the car and Lisa and I were singing and it was just awesome to take in God and his creation. Well, th this angel will preach good news by pointing to creation and calling man to fear God, to give him glory. You know, I think about this. I think this is why, this is why evolution, the theory of evolution is so offensive to the message of the gospel. 
Evolution is the spirit of the Antichrist. Denying the handiwork of God. It's a lie. Look at, look at verse 8. John sees this. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Second angel, off the bench, into the game. This angel goes out and declares, The system of this world is corrupt. Don't you know that? The system of this world is corrupt. I think about uh, what we've just observed over the last year in America. Corruption. In the election, corruption. Uh, I, I look at some of the things you, the UN has done. What, the things that they voted against Israel in the last month when there's all sorts of atrocities going all over the world and they're denying that Jews have a, a historical uh, place in Jerusalem. It's corrupt. It's totally corrupt. Babylon here is the title that God gives to the corrupt political and economic system of the world. The economic system, you think about it, it's corrupt. We, we look uh, uh, around the world in the inequity and all of these things. And, and God gives this name to the false religious and economic system, political system of the world. It's Babylon. And the angel declares this False religious system and political economic system, it, it's corrupt. And then he looks down the bench again, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image who reject, sorry, whoever receives the mark of its name and whoever receives the mark of its name. Third angel says this, God is going to judge. He is going to judge the world and those whose lives are in line with the corrupt system of this world, they're going to face his judgment. They're going to face an eternal separation from God. They're going to face the reality of hell here, fire and sulfur and eternal damnation. You know, there, there are plenty of people who would love to hear the hear the idea or hear it proclaimed that eternal separation from God, that a place called hell is not literal, that it doesn't last forever and ever, that it's not real. You know, it'd be a lot more comfortable for me to preach if that were the case. <laughs> but we don't interpret the word of God, obviously, based on our level of comfort. There's a disagreement between me and the word. If there's a different disagreement between you and the word of, word of God, guess who's wrong? I'm wrong. You're wrong. The word of God is right. And so do we move to make the word more comfortable or do we move ourselves and come in line with God's word no matter how discomforting it might make us feel? And the answer is this. We move. I move, not the word of God. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away before one iota of the word changes. In other words, 
God's word doesn't change. And so, you know, I believe we can, that we can trust what the church has proclaimed as orthodox in regards to the faith for thousands of years because the message does not change. And right now, you know, there are theological circles in which it's really cool and hip to redefine hell, to soften it up. But we read here that the angel is going to proclaim this in the end of the age. He's going to fly over the earth and proclaim this. Proclaim the full strength of God's wrath, torment forever and ever with fire and sulfur where there's no rest from that torment day or night. Not a metaphor. It's real. And Jesus said this in Matthew 25. He said at the end of time, he will, he will say to the unredeemed, depart from me, you cursed. Into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, if there's comfort in those words, it's this. That the everlasting fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. You need to know this about that place. It was never prepared for people. God never intended for people to go to hell. People go there by their own choice. By rejecting the natural revelation of the creator. By embracing the corrupt system of this world. By refusing God's rescue plan in the person of his son, Jesus. I mean, it's just the truth. If you, if you reject God's son... If you reject the provision made by Jesus Christ for you on the cross for your sin, the, the, the provision that satisfied the wrath of God, if you reject that, you'll never find rest. Never. You will never rest. And that's the fourth point I want to leave us with is this. That Jesus is rest. That Jesus is rest. He, he said, come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Charles Spurgeon uh, was the, was the son and the grandson of preachers. He came from a line of preachers. Raised with really strict adherence to the word of God in his home. And growing up intellectually in his home as a kid, as a, as a young teenager, uh, he knew intellectually the truth that Christ had died for his sins. But in his own life, he was so aware of his own personal shortcomings that he could not comprehend how that could apply to him. And so he would go around as a young man, like, like before the age of 15, when he actually got saved. Before the age of 15, he'd, he'd go around and he, he would ask different preachers, how can I get my sins forgiven? But all the answers that he would get would never satisfy him. No one would provide him with an answer that he understood until one day when he was 15 years old, he was headed to church it was during a snowstorm. He was on his own. And as he was making his way there, the snow was really heavy. And so he ducked unintendedly into, uh, not the place that he was intending to go, into a little Methodist chapel to escape the snow. And the congregation was really small. 
And there in that chapel was a lay preacher sharing the word of God that morning. He was filling in for the pastor and his text was from Isaiah 45, verse 22, which just says this. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon loved to recount this story. He said of the, this lay preacher, he said he didn't even pronounce the words right. But that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer for hope for me in that text. And the preacher began, he said, he, he said it was a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pain. You ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just a look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look, and you might be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. And Spurgeon says he went on for about 10 minutes. You know, he just, he, he, he went on for 10 minutes. He spun everything out of this little short text that he could spin out of it. And when the late preacher came to the end of his tether, he, he looked out amongst the small congregation that was there, and he saw Spurgeon sitting under the gallery. This young man, 15 years old. And Spurgeon says, with, with so few present, he knew that I was there and he knew that I was a stranger. And he said, he fixed his eyes on me. As if he knew what was in my heart and he said to me, young man, you look very miserable. Spurgeon says, well, I did. But I'm not accustomed to having those remarks made from the pulpit. <laughs> remarks on my personal appearance. However, he says it was a good blow. It struck me right at home. And the preacher continued, you will always, always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. If you'll obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And Spurgeon said this, I saw at once the way of salvation. I, I, I'd been waiting to do 50 things. When I heard the word look, what a charming word it seemed to be. Oh, I looked until I almost could have looked my eyes away. And there and then the cloud was gone and the darkness rolled away. And in the moment, I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung of the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith that looks to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust in Christ and you will be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. We know this about Spurgeon. He went to be one of the greatest preachers of his generation called the Prince of Preachers. And his testimony really is this that Jesus is rest. That in Jesus, there is rest. There is rest. And there's not 50 things that God is looking for us to do. Look, this year, as you just pursue the Lord, there's not 50 things God is looking for you to do. There's just one thing. Just one simple thing that you look to Christ Jesus. John said this in verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. This is my encouragement to you this morning. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. My friends, this year presents another opportunity for us to endure in the faith, to press on, 
keep on pressing on, to be patient, to be faithful, to endure, to be faithful to endure. And John says in verse 13, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may, ent- that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. You know, when I think about this text and I think about the gospel, we know this. There is no rest for the soul of the person who rejects Jesus Christ. But there is an eternal rest for those who are in Christ. Jesus will redeem us from this earth. Jesus is going to redeem us from our trials and our tribulations here. And in the meantime, we want to be found before the throne. Because he can come at any time. He's our rest. He's our rest. And there's not 50 things to do this morning. There's one thing that we look to him. I, uh, I just encourage you, look to Jesus.